to say. There are days when we wake up and instead of saying, Good Lord, it's morning, we say, Good Lord, it's morning. Because we just know it's not going to be a good day. The kind of days when we feel that if this is how it started, we might as well give up and go straight back to bed. Many years ago, Chris and I worked with a Christian singer from Northern Ireland. And um, he had a silly but ironic song that catalogued all sorts of things that would drive us straight back to bed. Like, like getting out of bed and sliding your feet into your shoes only to realise the cat has been sick in them. And each new catastrophe that he put together in this song had the refrain, It's gonna be a beautiful day. I guess we've all had days like that. Far worse are those seasons when life seems to be constantly going from bad to worse. When it seems to be no end of downward turns. And we just feel the irony of that old saying. Things could be worse, they said. So cheer up. So I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse. That's why it is so comforting to know that the Bible is a book that deals with real life, real problems and real people. And one such person with real problems was the man that Martine has just been reading to us about, Joseph. It might at first sight seem a rather strange example because at one point in in Genesis chapter 39 and verse 3, the Bible says, Now the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in everything that he did. But the other reality is that for most of the time Joseph experienced one disaster after another. For his first 30 years of life, just about nothing went right for him. Maybe some of us feel we can identify with that, as our lives seem to go from one crisis to another, from one hurtful experience to another. So let's look together at some of the highlights, or maybe I ought to say the lowlights, of at least the first part of Joseph's life. But first, the background. I love the way that the Bible pulls no punches about its human cast. No attempt is ever made to gloss over their many faults. And Joseph's background is full of intrigue, lying, rivalry, deception, and -and out-and-out hatred. Joseph's father was Jacob, the third of the line of patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So we actually need to start with Abraham, whose son Isaac married Rebekah. And she gave birth to twin boys, Jacob, whose name the Lord later changed to Israel, and Esau. These two brothers were at war with each other even before they were born. They struggled within Rebekah's womb. 
Esau was Isaac's favorite because he was a good hunter. But the more spiritually minded Jacob was Rebekah's favorite. The minimally elder twin, by minutes, Esau, had little regard for the spiritual heritage of his forefathers and sold his birthright of the headship and spiritual leadership of the family to Jacob for a bowl of lentil stew. Why on earth? I just don't like lentils, so, you know, I wouldn't have done that. You see, when Isaac was growing old, Rebecca, his beloved wife, tricked him into giving Jacob the patriarchal blessing that was intended for Esau. Not surprisingly, Rambo, uh, Esau sorry, was furious that he'd been tricked. And the rather more sensitive but exceedingly slippery Jacob fled to live with his uncle. And that's where he met his beloved wife, Rachel. And the trickery and deception that had characterized his mother's manipulations, not to say that his grandfather was innocent of such trickery, deception, and manipulation. All of this came back to horn Jacob. You see, he was deceived into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah, but later married Rachel as well, together with Rachel and Leah's maidservants, Bilhah and Zilpah. Between these four women, Jacob fathered 12 sons and one daughter. So when Joseph came along, he was his father's 11th son. And you might therefore deduce that with so many other and older sons to do all of the chores and carry on the family line, Joseph was never ever going to be particularly high up in the pecking order. However, Joseph was Jacob's firm favorite. And that for two reasons. The first one, quite simply, he was the son of his old age. Genesis 37 and verse 3 tells us that. There are enough hints and dates in Genesis for us to be pretty certain that Jacob was in his 90s when Joseph was born. So Jacob doted on this late-born child. There was, of course, an equally significant reason for Jacob's favor resting on Joseph. He was certainly during the early years of Joseph's story the only child born to his favorite wife, Rachel. What had happened was that Laban, Jacob's father-in-law, had tricked Jacob into working for him for years to pay Rachel's bride price, only to pass off his other daughter, Leah, at their wedding. And Jacob discovered too late that he had married the wrong woman. I wonder how much wine had flowed at their reception. 
Laban then demanded that Jacob should work yet more years for him, now to pay the bride price of the woman he really wanted to marry, Rachel. And whatever his feelings were towards his other wives, the love of his life was always Rachel, who finally, after years of seeming barrenness, gave birth to a child. And she called him Joseph. Interesting what it means. Joseph means, may the Lord add. So it was really a fleshed out prayer expressing her desire for God to give her another child after Joseph. And that's in Genesis chapter 30 and verse 24. Now I'm sure that mum and dad doted on this child. But the scriptures are silent about Joseph until at the age of about 17, he's found tending his father's flocks with his brothers. We see that in, in, in Genesis chapter 37. His brothers hated him with such venom that they wouldn't even speak to him. Mind you, the situation wasn't helped by his father Jacob, who was constantly giving him preferential treatment. Be sure the sins of the fathers will visit their offspring. Jacob made the situation worse, probably, when he magnified their hatred and their envy by giving Joseph that amazing Technicolor dream coat. A ground-length, long-sleeved, extra-special, multicolored robe. And the animosity of his brothers increased still more when Joseph told them about his, his dreams of dominion over them. Subsequently, when Joseph was sent to check on his brothers and the flocks at Shechem one day, his brothers saw an opportunity to dispose of their hated sibling. And they hatched a plot to get rid of Joseph and to deceive their father. Let's not kill him, they said. Let's, let's, let's lock him up somewhere. Somewhere he'll never escape from. Somewhere where he'll never be discovered. I mean, if he dies there of natural causes, well, that's hardly our fault, is it? So they threw him down a well. And that's sad today, isn't it, after that little boy who's been trapped down a well for, for four days has, has just died. Joseph didn't stay down the well because the brothers saw a caravan passing by, you know, a proper caravan with caramels and, 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 and loads of things. Uh, they were merchants, they were traders. And so the brothers saw a more profitable scheme and decided to sell Joseph to these nomadic merchants. That they did, but they took first his coloured robe and they dipped it in goat's blood. And they took it home to their father, Jacob. And the old man naturally concluded that Joseph had been killed by wild animals. And if you're following it in the scriptures, we're still in Genesis chapter 37. Jacob was overwhelmed with grief. And these Midianite merchants took Joseph with them to Egypt, where they sold him 
in the slave market. Can I just add, this all genuinely happened in history. It's neither myth nor legend. It's for real. Joseph came from a family that was as dysfunctional dysfunctional as many of those around us in our day. There's something so up-to-date about this. They were adept at deception. They were riddled with rivalry and division. And these are things that always undermine family values, destroying and hurting people in the very context which the Lord provided for their nurture and which always leaves people scarred for the rest of their lives. Joseph's lot improved somewhat when he actually became a slave in the house of a prominent Egyptian named Potiphar. And he did such a good job there that he was given more and more responsibility until he was eventually put in charge of the whole household. But his good fortune was short-lived. Because of this higher profile that he now had, the mistress of the house began to notice him. And the Bible says that after a while, Mrs. Potiphar began to fancy Joseph and to ask him to go to bed with her. He refused, but she kept on asking day after day. Well, as the saying goes, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. And so, I suppose in today's terms, she filed a claim for sexual harassment. Insulted, fuming that she'd been rejected, she cried out, that Hebrew slave tried to rape me. And Joseph was back onto his downward spiral and thrown into jail. If you've ever been falsely accused of something, anything really, but especially if it was serious, you'll be able to relate to Joseph at this point. Things had gone from bad to worse. And just when he thought things couldn't possibly get any worse, they did. Here I am. I'm in prison. What worse could happen to me, he was thinking, when he suffered an even more damaging form of rejection. He was forgotten by those he thought had become good friends. In prison, he'd befriended a couple of guys who were also doing time. And when the release date of one of them came up, Joseph, I suppose, made himself vulnerable again and said, please, if you value my friendship, please mention me to the king. Help me get out of here. I guess we all know if we've ever suffered serious rejection in our lives, then we become very reluctant to take the risk of making ourselves vulnerable again. We all tend to protect ourselves from further hurt. And I'm sure that Joseph here was really feeling exactly that, that that this is a risk. But he was so desperate that he was willing to go down that path one more time. And so he shares his fears 
and his need with his friend, the wine steward. Result? The king's once and future sommelier never gave Joseph another thought. He forgot all about him. Does that ring any bells with anyone? Joseph's been hurt by jealous people. He's been slandered by immoral people. And now he's been dumped, cast aside by his friends. How on earth do we cope with something like that? How do we go on when life just keeps going from bad to worse? Well, the answer simply is, it all depends. It all depends on where God is in our lives. The verse I mentioned as we started, the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Even when we've been wounded by envious relatives, maligned by corrupt employers, and rejected by self-centered friends, we can still cope with thorny trials, provided we keep or we put the Lord at the center of our lives. Joseph's story began with hopes and dreams and visions of glory, but it all seemed to have fallen sadly, badly apart. And I think that for some of us, life started out brightly enough, but now we can't see how our dreams could ever come to fruition. The circumstances now seem to have made all of our bright hopes utterly impossible. Joseph's hopes seem to have died as he languished in prison, forgotten by everyone. His brothers were relieved to have seen the last of him. His brother, his father, thought he was dead. And his trusted friend, once released, never even gave him another thought. But the Lord hadn't forgotten him. Indeed, he'd been tenderly watching over Joseph's responses and reactions to all of his difficulties. Little by little, this, quite frankly, spoiled, arrogant young man had begun to learn the ways of God. His experiences of trials and testing were producing a humility and a flexibility in Joseph, which his privileged childhood could never have produced, and in fact, had actually probably prevented. But then, Almost without warning, it seems that the Lord joined up all of the loose ends in Joseph's life. Everything he'd been through would have seemed cruel, unfair, unnecessary, undeserved. But the Lord was shaping this man for a great destiny. A destiny he could not have come into had he not passed this way first. 
And that's the way our Lord always works. He's far more concerned about our character than about our comfort, our calling, than our convenience. He uses everything we go through to make us the people he wants us to be. Who we are is far, far more important than what we do. The Lord prepares us for purposes in life that he alone foresees. Joseph had dreamt his dreams and seen his visions. He knew he was special, not only to his parents, but also to the Lord. But his response was that of pride and of arrogance, not of humility and gratitude. He had obviously no clarity about what the Lord's will for him would be in the long term. But he enjoyed lording it over those whom he considered his inferiors. For Joseph, the Lord's ultimate plan was hidden. Especially hidden from Joseph while he was passing through these darkest of times. And and sometimes, frankly, it's the same for us. And those are the times above all others when we must continue to trust the Lord for the outcome. Just as our Heavenly Father allowed Joseph to go through so many trials, so he allows us to go through times of confusion and of conflict and of frustration. Times when the Lord just seems to be silent. But can I say this? There's one thing that we really need to realize about the Lord's silences. And it's simply this. That is all they are. There are times when he watches over us. When he cares for us. But says nothing new. Because our lives are still very much in his hands. And he simply is wanting to bring us to a new place so that we can become, with his help, people who will help others to find God and his strength in their lives. In Genesis chapter 41, naming the first of his children, Joseph makes a lovely comment on his experiences with the Lord. Genesis 41 and verse 51, Joseph named his firstborn son Manasseh. Manasseh means forget. And he says, for God has made me forget all my troubles And my parental home. The Lord enabled Joseph to forget the pain and the difficulty of his life. It's one of those wonderful things about the Lord. That he is 
as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he is able to cause all things to work for the good of those who love him. With Jesus in our lives, a time ultimately comes when God enables us to forget all of the very real pain of the past. So if our experience is that things have gone from bad to worse and our dreams lay shattered on the floor, be encouraged. Be encouraged by Joseph's experience. In Genesis chapter 41 and verse 52, his story continues. He named the second son Ephraim. Double prosperity is what that means. For, he said, God has prospered me in the land of my sorrow. God made him fruitful in the midst of the very things that afflicted him. Be encouraged that in our place of sorrow and trouble, in our darkest times, maybe that is precisely where God wants to make us fruitful. So how does this work? Is there something we must do? Frankly, yes. And I believe it's in the area of our reaction to the circumstances of our lives. How does the Lord want us to react to these hard times? It's a question of perspective. If the mountaintops are the times when our vision of God is brightest, the valleys are to be times when our trust in him is at its deepest. We really must resist specializing in being miserable. Instead, we are to be those who specialize in thankfulness. We all need to learn to be thankful to God for whatever circumstances we are in. Because thankfulness is the key that unlocks prisons of misery and permits us to start to move, spiritually at least, out of the valley and back to the heights. When we learn to regularly practice gratitude, we begin to draw into the very presence of God. Our attitude determines whether life is a place of blessedness or of wretchedness. You know this illustration, I'm sure, but two people looking at the same rosebush. One complains that the flowers are spoiled by all those thorns, while the other rejoices that the thorn bush can bear such beautiful flowers. It all depends on our perspective. When we begin to thank God for all of his goodness, even though our situation 
might not change. We ourselves begin to change. The Psalms tell us this. The key that unlocks heaven's gate is a thankful heart. Entrance into the presence of God comes as we begin to praise him. When great hardships or small irritations come our way, we need to remember the truth that God's plan allows for problems so he can help us to mature. There's an old story about somebody who, seeing a butterfly trying to struggle with the cocoon, they cut it open to help it. That butterfly could never fly. The struggle was what would have given wings strength. The Lord takes us through these times to strengthen us, to mature us. In precisely the area of our difficulty, God will make us fruitful in such a way that our hearts will be at peace and he will be glorified. Ultimately, the Lord will touch others through what we have learned. In a world that is superficial, Jesus will produce something within us that is deep and real and vital. The Lord has not promised to keep us from times of suffering. But he has most definitely promised to be with us in times of suffering. To make us fruitful in them. To take us safely through them and out the other side. Without a doubt, we will each one of us pass through dark days before we reach our final goal in the Lord. And he desires to see from us that attitude that shows we know him to be our almighty and loving father, even in the bad times. As we remain faithful to him in trials, thanking him in all things, the character and the nature of Christ Jesus will be ever more visibly formed in us We are called to be his image bearers in the world. And so Jesus will be seen in us by those all around us. For me, this isn't theory. There have been dark days in my journey to being here. And I'm not for one moment thinking that that's not true of every single one of us. But our God is faithful. And however long it takes, he will take us through this time. The Lord is calling us to pledge ourselves to him this way. To thank him and to adore him in everything. His response will always be to make his presence in our lives visible it's a sacrifice of thanksgiving for it will cost us to praise him when we're going through difficult times 
But to do so is part of our healing and our salvation. We will all of us find our perspective changing from that of the valley depths to that of the mountain tops as we make it a habit to thank him and praise him. He desires to make our lives a beacon and a signpost for others around us that they too might see his glory as they come to understand that even in the valleys, even in the face of life's adversities and irritations, he enables us not to be grumbling miseries, but rather to be a thankful people who worship their God for his goodness and his faithfulness. May we pray together. Father God, we bless you that you are the God of all grace, of all mercy, of all goodness, the God of loving kindness, the God who desires nothing more than that we should enter into the fullness of the destiny that you have for 